Cryoverge podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got Daniel Dornbush on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Daniel, who is he? So Daniel has over 25 years of experience building pharmaceutical and biotech companies, and he is currently the CEO of Excision Biotherapeutics, which for full disclosure is a company that we invested in at BioVert a few years ago. I am uh, incredibly excited to talk to Daniel today and to continue a recent theme of this podcast where we've been talking about the current state of CRISPR-based applications and, and platforms. Uh, and so today we're going to talk to Daniel about Ex- Excision's approach to develop CRISPR-based therapies to cure viral infectious diseases, starting with HIV, to improve the lives of chronically ill patients. Uh, in September, Excision announced that they dosed the first patient in a phase one, two trial, evaluating their lead therapy as a potential cure for HIV. And to my knowledge, this is the very first trial to ever evaluate an in vivo CRISPR-based therapy in an infectious disease. So I think that's a pretty pretty big milestone across across the industry. I think a lot of people look at chronic viral diseases as something for which there's generally therapies. How big a need is there? Well, that's actually something I'm really curious to ask Daniel about, right? So Obviously, the antiretroviral therapies for HIV have been hugely successful, and it's now more of a a chronic and manageable disease. However, people are still on, you know, medications that no doubt have long-term effects, have likely lots of side effects. So I would venture to guess that if if there was a curative option, I, I don't know why someone wouldn't want to seek that. So, um, but but really interested to get Daniel's perspective on on that one. There's a lot of excitement around emerging gene editing technology. Excision's taking a, a novel approach using this technology to address chronic viral disease. It's using the gene editing technology to edit the viral genome rather than the human genome. What's the case for doing that? Yeah, so I think it's 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 really interesting, and I just want to give a little bit of context, which um, you know I'll ask Daniel about, but I just quickly want to set the stage. So. Um, in, in 2007, there was a patient who was actually cured of HIV, the very first patient, in fact, uh, named Timothy Ray Brown, who was known as the Berlin patient. Uh, he was diagnosed with HIV and then later developed acute myeloid leukemia. He was given a bone marrow transplant from a donor who was naturally resistant to HIV. And as a result, it meant he no longer needed antiviral drugs and he actually remained free of the virus for the rest of his life until he passed away recently in, in 2020, I believe. Um, and so in, in, in that case, the donor had a mutation in the gene for CCR5, which is a cell surface molecule that many HIV strains use to infect cells. So there's been a lot of work in the industry targeting CCR5 to try to mutate or inactivate that receptor as a way to 
um, deactivate the ability for HIV to actually infect a human cells. So that's been a lot of what's done historically. That's not what excision is doing. Excision is taking a fundamentally different approach by targeting the viral DNA instead of trying to modify CCR5 or, or something in our own cells. And so I'm really excited to learn about how that approach differs from what's been done in the past and the specificity of what, of, of what they're doing. So I think there's a lot to dig into here. And what are you hoping to hear from Daniel today? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking to hear a, a bit about their journey developing this therapy, how it's, how it's different than what's been done in the past. Uh, as a quick aside, Excision also has a grant from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, where I used to work. And so I'm, I'm you know, actually really excited to ask Daniel about you know, that, that grant in particular, but more generally the idea of how non-dilutive funding plays a role in advancing novel therapies um, and how that type of funding works in concert with private funding from from VCs, because I think Daniel will have a pretty good perspective about all of that. Well, if you're all set. Let's do it, Danny. Daniel, a big thanks for joining us today. I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Well, thanks so much, Neil. Really appreciate it. I love what you and Danny and your team have uh, done over over time and really excited to be able to share the excision story with you today. Well, thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate that. So uh, today we are going to talk about uh, excision biotherapeutics and the potential to deliver a curative therapy to patients with HIV, as well as other infectious diseases, through your CRISPR-based gene therapy platform. Before we jump into your technology, though, let's start with HIV, which no longer seems to command the headlines it once did. In mm. part, that's because of the success of antiretroviral therapies. And so it's been easier to forget about the extent and significance of HIV. But I want to ask, where, where are we in regards to HIV? How much of a public health issue does it represent today, both in the U.S. and around the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Then we can start getting into other viruses that we're working on, uh, herpes virus, hepatitis B, but absolutely, let's start with, with, with HIV. And, and you're exactly right. Um, uh, it doesn't get quite the headlines or, or congressional hearings that did uh, in, in decades past. But just to give a, a broad view, in the U.S., approximately 1.2 million people are infected with HIV. Globally, this is more than 38 million people. Uh, by the uh, WHO's estimates, about 650,000 people die of AIDS in the, every year, or at least in the last 12 months. Uh, and on the infectious, uh, on the infection side, this is equates to about 4,000 people getting HIV every day. Uh, so that's just the, the incidence and prevalence piece to it. But on, on a healthcare basis, I mean, we can just think about it if we want to think about it very narrowly in the U.S. sort of costs. Uh, HIV AIDS is a significant cost to healthcare system. Uh, Josh Cohen uh, did a great published a great paper a couple of years ago, one or two years ago, found that in the U.S., an HIV-infected individual cost the U.S. healthcare system approximately $1.5 million more than a person not infected with HIV. Uh, there's a study in the EU with similar, slightly lower results, but we're talking about uh, tens of billions of dollars globally in, in, uh, in healthcare costs. Well, and, and Daniel, let, let's dive into that a little further. So th there are a number of existing therapies that control HIV pretty yeah. well these days. Maybe we could talk about those a little bit and, and some of the health consequences of those long-term therapeutic regimens. 
Sure. Uh, there are some terrific uh, developments and, and now opportunities and, and therapies for to control HIV replication. What we're talking about is antiretroviral therapies. Uh, they're extremely effective when used correctly, meaning uh, taken per the physician's um, and the labeled guidelines. And what we really mean is when we say a, a very, we use these words very, very well, or how does it control? What we really mean is, um, uh, is an undetectable level. There's some commercials you may have seen around U equals U. What they're really talking about is if you can get HIV down to an undetectable level, it means that it's been shown that it can be also untransmittable. So what we're talking about is if you can take these antiretrovirals daily as prescribed, you don't, you, you won't be able to transmit this virus to others. Uh, we've now got several regimens that we've been developed over the years. Uh, but just as you mentioned, Neil, there's some significant side effects that don't get a lot of uh, airplay uh, to these. It's not only associated with just these antiretroviral treatments, but often when you uh, we talk about when it's released into the real world, which means everyday people with real world problems, things that they, they take other medications, which can compound side effects, whether it's diabetic medications or antidepressants or, uh, or other pieces. Uh, there's quite a number of publications on this. In fact, one of our scientific advisors, David Clifford, published a paper uh, a few years ago showing that almost a third of HIV positive individuals have peripheral neuropathy. I mean, uh, and actually almost 10% have symptomatic, meaning it's a, it's a significant problem for them uh, in, in their uh, nervous system. Uh, another one is that HIV and, and antiretrovirals induce metabolic imbalances. Uh, there's been lots of studies on this and leading to things called metabolic syndrome or METS, if, if you uh, have read those papers. This increases cardiovascular disease. Uh, some studies estimate that a quarter, 25, 26% of the entire HIV population has increased risk of cardiovascular disease because of this. Um, and then there's a, another piece to this and, and the health consequence side. Uh, well, we'll stop there. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into more details later. Yeah, no, that, that's great, Daniel. So I do you know, there's a lot of points there that you mentioned. And so let, let's turn to the technology that you're developing at Excision. Right. And let's, let's start from the 30,000 foot vantage point. Um, you, you know, you mentioned a number of the issues um, that derive from people taking long-term therapies, but let, let's, let, let me just very specifically ask you about the case for developing a curative gene therapy for, sure. for HIV. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a couple of places. First is we've talked about the side effects of many of these populations, but by some accounts, it's in the 10% or so range of people who are HIV positive with significant side effects on antiretrovirals who are looking for a cure. Another 10% or so are refractory, meaning they um, don't respond to frontline therapy and are on either second, third, maybe last line therapy. And for some of those, they may be, uh, if they become resistant to one more line, there, there's nothing else they can so there are multiple, we call them subsets, but it's, but it's groups within the HIV uh, infected communities, which are, are really needing a cure. Uh, you look no further than, than talking to physicians or patients or families in this. We can talk about the, um, 
we, we actually recently talked to one of our advisors who said, we asked him how many of your, and he treats, in his practice, he treats thousands of HIV positive people. We said, of your population, how many are going to be interested in a cure? And he said, 100%. And we said, wait, okay, really, 100%? Well, for a more quantitative response to your answer, there's actually peer-reviewed papers. There's been multiple studies looking at this, and they've gone around the world and interviewed people who are HIV positive. Uh, we can send you these or, or pu- put it on your website. But but essentially, there's uh, when they go and interview people, and we're talking hundreds or thousands actually now, uh, and they what they they all rank the desire to be cured well over eighty percent, eighty percent as like extremely desirable. Right? There was you know a one to five or one to ten scale, and on the on the extreme side, it's we highly desirable to be cured. More importantly, I think, is that when they follow up questions saying. How how likely? How much do you want to be cured? Ninety five percent or so of the respondents in one of these studies uh, said that they wanted to help find a cure as a reason to participate in HIV cure related studies, even if it caused side effects. So this is a highly motivated uh, group of individuals um, that look. We've been looking for a cure for forty years for this disease. And it's eluded us at every step. Um, we think it's not worth giving up. And Daniel, I, I couldn't agree more. Definitely a motivated patient population. And for a disease that today we seem to think is well-managed, obviously there is a huge motivation for a curative type therapy, which is obviously what you're working on. So as we dive into your technology specifically, I, I think it would be helpful if you gave a little bit of an overview about how HIV works and how the virus hijacks cells to replicate itself. Maybe we can just start there with the biology, and then that will be a good overview for us to then talk about what you're doing differently. Sure. Happy to. Um, this is uh, some people describe HIV as diabolical, and in, in many ways it is. Uh, it, so let's start with HIV infects cells in a series of steps. Um, right, you, you essentially get an, an exposure of a certain level of HIV particles by by some sort of a blood or, t- or fluid transmission. Uh, it starts when the virus adheres to host cells, ends with the integration of viral DNA into the host genome. So let's just walk through it really in a high level. First, the virus binds to target cells. Uh, we refer to this, you may refer to it as the viral envelope protein binding to host cell proteins. And some of these are things like GP120, GP41, the variable loop three. There's a whole series and set of, of these interactions. Point is the virus binds to, to immune cells. It fuses with the membrane, delivers its RNA. Uh, and, and one piece you may have also heard of, these are, this is where CCR4, or CCR5 uh, is, is integrated. These are co-receptors. Uh, they're called chemokine co-receptors. They, they are essential for the HIV to then uncoat, put its RNA into a cell. That gets translated into DNA. That travels to the nucleus. And here's where it gets sort of even more challenging. That DNA then integrates randomly into the host genome. Uh, couple of interesting pieces that have come to light really in the last year or two. There's some, been some really interesting work done by Bob Silicano and his team over at Hopkins. And he's published that of all of the HIV that gets infected into cells, less than 3%, his numbers are 2.4% of HIV DNA is full length, 
which means either in this process or in some sort of a process, well over 97% of the HIV DNA sort of gets mutated in a way where it's not full length and not infectious. So it really, uh, these HIV infections are a subset of a subset of a subset of the way we talk about it, right? HIV only infects lymphoid cells. Of those, it's really about one in a million lymphoid cells get infected. Of those, stem cells aren't infected. And of those, 2.4% of those are full length. So um, in many ways, it's a diabolical uh, virus uh, and makes it very hard to detect where the um, infection actually is. So that that really is a, a good way to describe it as, as diabolical. And, and Daniel, there were there are two specific points that you just talked about that I want to dive into. One is this idea of HIV sort of being a highly mutable virus. What what are the consequences of that from the perspective of of trying to develop a, a therapeutic? Yeah, that's been challenging in some ways, uh, but opportunities in others. And this is, in some ways, the some of the fundamental uh, structures and activities we've been building here at Excision. And so let's just start from that as, yes, it's highly mutable, but there are some genes within HIV which are essential to replication. And when they're essential, they tend to be similar across uh, individuals' populations. Uh, and we can go into which genes these are, but I think the process is actually the, probably the point of this. So what we've been building at Excision is actually a, a bioinformatics platform. It's a fancy way to say we've got some extremely intelligent uh, individuals at the company who've built uh, essentially a software approach to look at how the, the similarities of HIV sequences across populations we call it which are the genes that are most conserved, the ones that are, have shared sequences and, are, and don't vary between groups. Those tend to be the areas that uh, we target. Not surprisingly, those tend to be the most uh, essential genes for HIV replication. Yeah, and and Daniel, so I think th- so. This is this is a great segue to talk about what you're doing differently. So if we if we go back to your explanation about how the HIV virus infects cells, right? There are there are cell surface receptors like CCR5 that you mentioned, which mm-hmm. a lot of folks have targeted in the past, right? And so, you know, there was excitement a, a number of years ago with the you know, Berlin patient, right? So mm-hmm. this is a man who was treated with or for leukemia with a stem cell transplant from a from donor cells from someone who was genetically resistant to HIV. Mm-hmm. And that transplant cured um, the Berlin patient of HIV. So there was a lot of excitement around that, a lot of companies developing, you know, therapies to try to replicate that. Can you compare and contrast what you're doing differently from what has been done in those efforts? Yeah, Neil, you, you, your questions never disappoint. Uh, <laughs> great question. So this is Timothy Ray Brown, and he actually came out and said, this is who I am. Uh, we knew him as the Berlin patient because it was we wanted to keep his identity secret, but then he, he hit the media, uh, and he became the first person in the world cured of HIV. So he was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia called acute myeloid leukemia that required a, a bone marrow transplant. And he received the, the, a, a very... Um, sort of ingenious physician in Germany, in in Berlin, uh, decided they would, why don't we give him bone marrow? Uh, Timothy Ray Brown was was infected with HIV. 
And so we decided, why don't we give him bone marrow from a person who's resistant to HIV infections? They actually had a, a mutation in the CCR5 gene called the Delta 32 mutation, but it's in that gene we talked about that uses HIV to bind. So uh, he had bone marrow transplant. Uh, and for more than a decade, he remained vir- HIV virus free, meaning by, a- by, by HIV uh, RNA detection. So using a standard HIV assay test, he was virus free and he was not on his antiretrovirals. Uh, there's now been two other people, one called the London patient in two, three years ago, 2019 ish. Uh, and then uh, there's been also a Dusseldorf patient that also showed no signs of HIV after a similar procedure. The the challenge is, and this doesn't get a lot of airtime, is that there's been well over a dozen individuals who've had tried to have this procedure. They've had AML, had their bone marrow transplants. We see this as a really important uh, uh, milestone to show that HIV can be cured. Uh, it's possible. Uh, we're taking a slightly different approach. Uh, trying to replicate that approach has been problematic for several reasons. Uh, the first is that it looks like you really need to eliminate almost all of the host uh, hematopoietic stem cells, meaning their, their bone marrow. All of those patients, Berlin, the London patient, had we call them a belative bone marrow transplant. So they take enough chemotherapy to essentially kill off their immune system and then get a transplant. Uh, with acute myeloid leukemia, you need one in order to treat the disease. Uh, it also comes with approximately a 20% chance of death at five years. So it's a highly challenging, um, dangerous, I, I would say, um, uh, op- uh, option. And, and, and Daniel, so let's, let's talk about what you're doing differently then. So excision is really taking a fundamentally different approach because you're targeting the viral rather than human DNA. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So what we're doing here is, and it's not unique to us, but there's been researchers trying to do this since HIV was discovered is, well, wait, HIV integrates its DNA into the host genome. Why don't you just go ahead and cut it out? Well, That's proven to be problematic. And one of the reasons it's problematic is that when you make a cut in viral DNA, there's, we call them the the promoters, we call them actually promiscuous. What it means is that the transcription, as you read the viral DNA, it is able to overcome mutations. So if you're going to use some of the molecular tools that we've had for decades now to try to cut into the uh, HIV DNA, what ends up happening is the HIV mutates right around those cuts. And so what it means is that uh, even though you make a cut, HIV goes right on replicating. The difference that we're doing here uh, and and what uh, was discovered, and I guess is how the company started is we, the original scientists just wouldn't let it go, frankly. And they kept going after what can we do? And in almost a, a, you can say it's a, a, almost a mistake or an aha moment. They made multiple cuts in a viral genome. They removed uh, thousands of base pairs in the HIV genome and lo and behold, it deactivated the, the virus. 
That's really, I mean, it's really fascinating. And I mean, you talked about HIV being diabolical. I mean, that description of it evading some of these you know, tools that we've had before really, really emphasizes that point. So let's, Daniel, I, I want to expand on, on that last point because I'm always really curious about sort of the origin or founding story of, of companies. Can yeah. you talk about the, the founding story of Excision, where the technology was licensed from and the basis for it? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, a couple of places. The, this original technology, this concept of making more than one cut in a viral genome came out of Kamel Khalili's lab at Temple University. So he and his, his team, uh, including Jen Gordon, who's now here over with Excision running R&D, uh, came up with this concept and moved it forward into in vitro studies. I mean, it started uh, in 2012. So the way he tells the story is that he'd been working on this concept for, for years uh, he had tried to um, make cuts with things like uh, different molecular scissors, what we call either zinc fingers or meganucleases. And it was always extremely difficult to do anything that it just didn't work. Uh, but it said it wasn't until Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier published uh, their first CRISPR paper in 2012 that Kamel said, aha, this is the tool to do it. And he got right to work. Uh, putting more than one guide RNA. And the difference here is that with CRISPR, you, it, it uses something called a guide RNA to bind to a DNA, to, to a site and cut. And those guides are small enough to put into a single package. And that's what we're doing here is we're, we're using a single package. In, in the case of HIV, we're using something called a, a retro, a, an adeno-associated virus. Uh, this one's called AAV9 to get to the immune cells, deliver the CRISPR, and cut out the viral DNA. So that, that's where it started at Temple University. We've also since gone uh, right to uh, Jennifer's Doudna's lab here at UC Berkeley. We've uh, got a license to the Cas X and Y families. The Cas12 family is sort of what we, some people call the next generation of, of CRISPR editors uh, to do that. So it really is a it, these exclusive licenses from Berkeley, from Temple, and then now seven or eight years of work here at Excision to, to advance this technology to multiple viruses. That's, that's really amazing. And, and just a quick aside, I, I happen to be right in the middle of reading Codebreaker uh, by Walter Isaacson, ah. uh, all about the Doudna yeah. story and, and, and CRISPR. And it's just, a, it's just a, such a fascinating tale. Um, so it's a great it, one. It really is. So, so, so Daniel, let, let's, let's transition. Because I, I, I want to talk about your lead therapy, uh, EBT 101. So mm -hmm. this is intended to be a one and done gene editing therapy. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. what EBT 101 is and how it works? Yeah, of course. Uh, it is intended to be just as you said, a one and done. Can you, can we cure HIV potentially? Uh, and we can get into what that cure word means and how to measure it because it's, it is a problematic word. Uh, but let's let's start with what it is, and we can get into some specifics. The, the ABT101 is a uh, now a clinical stage compound. We can say uh, it's in what we call an in vivo CRISPR-based therapeutic. So what we are using is I mentioned AAV9. It's a it's a in fact in some ways we're using a virus to go kill a virus. If there's poetry in in that approach. <laughs> Uh, so we're, the, the virus we're using AAV9 has been sort of tested in now I think hundreds of clinical trials. 
uh, and is also the vehicle that uh, Novartis Avexis use in a commercialized, it's got past the FDA and it's treating uh, individuals, not for HIV, of course, but for rare genetic disorder. Uh, but it's a well-known vehicle. Uh, we package a CRISPR DNA to encode for CRISPR, as well as two gRNAs into this AV9 and, and deliver it in a single IV infusion. I think that's uh, how, how detailed do you yeah, want to get here? No, that, no, that, 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 that's of- great. Um, so, you know, my next question is the specificity to the viral DNA. Yeah, um, you know, with with a lot of gene therapies, folks are really concerned about off-target effects. Are there those types of concerns with this therapy? Well, anytime we talk about uh, gene therapy, we there has to be a focus on off-target effects. And and I'll, I'll broaden it for just a second and say every drug ever developed, uh, we have to look at the cost benefit or what we talk about in drug development, the therapeutic window. What is the, where, where's the therapeutic benefit and what are the dental side effects? You, you hear about it in every commercial. So with this one, let's get into the, the specifics of gene therapy, gene editing of what is the potential to have an off-target effect. Now, our approach of targeting non-human DNA puts us in a whole different category. And here's how I mean. And actually, we've now published some data to show the quantitative differences between what we're doing and everything else. We can get into that if you like. By looking at viral DNA, first of all, the viral DNA tends to look very different than human DNA. And yes, there's uh, there's some subsets of uh, ancient virus in our DNA, and there's some uh, developmental biology genetic studies looking back across populations, but in general, human DNA tends to be very A and T rich. Remember DNA is A, T, C's and G's. Human tends to be A and T rich. Viruses tend to be C and G rich. So just in the fundamental start, it tends to have a different component or percentage of different uh, uh, base pairs. Second, uh, when we're going and looking for where we can target to cut a virus, we have a very broad uh, opportunity. These viral genomes are tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of base pairs. So we've got quite a a broad target, frankly, to to use uh, to figure out where we're going to make our cuts. And third, uh, we actually have built a, a bioinformatics engine to look at how we can select sequences that are least likely to have an off-target cut. So here's how we do it. But first, we look at, we, we sort of talk about, a, a, built a six-step process. One's the viral database curation, where we get the viral databases, and we collect and curate these sequences from multiple different areas. We then can build the consensus genomes. Third, we look at conserved guide RNAs across these consensus genomes. And that was one thing you mentioned earlier. It was a really great question, Neil, about the conservation. What are the most conserved areas within those genomes? Fourth, we look at modeling activity of GNR repair, meaning if we cleave it at that site, what will happen and how do we do the repair modeling? And then fifth, and this is probably the most important part, once we select our targets, we then cross-reference it against anything in the human genome meaning we prioritize for anything that will cut the virus, but not cut anywhere else in the human genome. And in all of our work so far in our 
preclinical studies on human cells, on mice, on primates, we haven't seen any off-target cuts in the tens of thousands of cells we've now looked at in dozens of tissues and multiple species. How can that be possible? Well, we can actually, we actually published some data earlier this year about exactly that. When you look at our guides, meaning what the matching DNA sequences are, it doesn't match anywhere in the human genome. If you change a base pair, meaning we call it a mismatch, it still doesn't match anything in the human genome. If you, ma- if you change two, it still doesn't match anything in the human genome. Uh, we have to go to, to three, four, and five mismatches, which in sort of the genetics CRISPR approach, most people say that it's a theoretical impossibility that we'd have a cut at that, re- at that area. So it's actually fundamental to what we've built in our bioinformatics and we call it our discovery uh, engine. And, and that's just such a powerful combination, right? That sort of in silico design phase of the probes combined with, you know, the wet lab and what you're doing in vivo. It's, it's just such a powerful combination. Um, it makes for a really fun collaborative group, right? We've got the bioinformatics, these really mathematical and, and software experts mixed with biologists, mixed with virologists, mixed with statisticians. It, it, we can't, no one can do this alone. This is a truly collaborative activity. And, and so, I mean, Daniel, that brings up another point that I like to talk about a lot on this show is this idea of culture, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the various disciplines that exist. Um, I mean, how, do you, how would you sort of describe the culture at Excision, getting all of these various disciplines to communicate <laughs> and speak the same language? Uh, let's go with highly passionate. Um, <laughs> And I joke a bit with this because I got calls to jump on Zooms at 10 p.m. or later last night. Just be, hey, can you jump on this? We're all working. Uh, This is a team um, uh, that is just so highly driven, motivated, and talented and experienced. Um, You you look across who we've been lucky enough to have joined this team, and uh, I just... um, I think across everyone, we're we're all just lucky to be working with each other. And here, here's the point: is that uh, I think in some ways we've all wanted to cure these diseases: HIV, herpes virus, hepatitis B, for decades in our careers. This may be, and, and you look at you know we've got a, Bob Gallo, the co-discoverer of HIV, a couple of years ago, even published an article, and he said that this is the technology that's going to cure HIV. Uh, I certainly hope he's right. Uh, we're working on it, and we're working hard on it. If that's if there's one thing we can dedicate quite a number of years and a lot of uh, restless hours and weekends and nights to to do, we're all working toward it. Uh, so part of it is passion. Part of it is, of course, science-based. The part of it is, can we have a little fun as we're going through this to, to enjoy uh, the, the ride, which frankly makes long nights to, of work easier to easier to deal with. Um, it, it's always, uh, we try to focus quite a bit on, on just the people and the people is inside and outside of the organization. One thing we all... Um, felt passionate about is engaging with the HIV AIDS community, for example, uh, very early in the development of EBT 101. Uh, classically, uh, you know, if you go sort of the, the playbook of pharmaceutical development, 
we usually don't engage with the communities until we have some data, human data to, to discuss. And so we wait until maybe phase one or two so we can actually talk about what, what this drug may or may not be. In this, we, we engaged with the community uh, before we were in the clinic. Uh, and what, one of the reasons we did this is, uh, first of all, that the HIV AIDS community is an outstanding group of individuals and um, I want to get their approval before I name any of these wonderful people uh, on in, in public, so I won't. But um, but we've engaged them in sort of one-on-one bases. We've have, we've hosted uh, community advisory board meetings. We've presented our data, and we just want to know how they can. And they've always they've been extreme, exceedingly, extremely helpful, guiding us and saying this is what you should be doing. This is what you should avoid. This is the kind of things. And so the, they actually had some. Um, really helpful input in how we designed our trials and I think how we're going to move and this Daniel, forward. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's so powerful. And that, that's something that I learned from my days at CIRM. Um, and I know you have a, a CIRM grant, so I want to talk about that in a minute. But, you know, CIRM did such yeah. a wonderful job involving patient advocates at every step along the way and making sure we always had the patient perspective to help guide the development of these therapies. And it's, it's just it's such a powerful perspective that I don't think enough folks in the industry really utilize. Um, before we get to the CIRM grant and the idea of non-dilutive funding in general, I, I do I just want to just go back to the clinical trial because in, I know in September you announced the dosing of the first patient, which is obviously mm-hmm. extraordinarily exciting. Can you just talk a little bit about the trial? When do you expect a full rate readout? Are there any interim looks at the data along the way? Yes. Yeah, so this is a phase one, two trial. Uh, we did mention that we dosed our first patient in 2022. Uh, we're excited about this. And so now we're, we're in, uh, we're opening up sites and, and uh, thankfully treating participants. Uh, we'll be getting interim readouts next year. So we're expecting to announce some data in 23. Uh, the trial should wrap up in 2024. And the way this trial is structured is that uh, we call it open label. Uh, we, essentially, the FDA gave us guidance that we know what happens when you take individuals off of their antiretrovirals. They rebound it. HIV comes right back. So it was there was some, um, and I believe they said essentially that uh, it was not exactly ethical to do a, a placebo control in this because, well, you, you might be offering no benefit. So what we're doing here is we're uh, selecting individuals who have HIV, uh, who are well controlled on antiretrovirals, so they're um, they're stable and undetectable. We then give them a single IV infusion of EBT one hundred and one. Takes about an hour or two, uh, and then they go home. We're waiting. Um, well, they, 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 of course, there's several tests they do in the in the clinic, and then they go home. Uh, we wait three months, so we're keeping them. Uh, the study keeps these individuals on antiretrovirals for for three months for twelve weeks. At which point, if they everything looks uh, looks safe and, and normal, we then stop antiretrovirals and we monitor for uh, for rebound. Which is we sort of mentioned that word cure. Uh, we would love to somehow get to a, a, an area where we can talk about cure. Cure is a, a challenging term to describe because it's scientifically impossible to prove. 
uh, to prove that we've cured someone, we'd have to show in maybe in every one of their cells that we, there's no more HIV, which would kill the patient. It's one of the challenges that the cancer community always in, engages with that C word. At what stage do you do that? Well, how do you know that a, a tumor has disappeared? You'd have to essentially sequence every cell and kill the patient. So that doesn't work. So what we're probably looking at is the same kind of uh, endpoints as, as a cancer clinical trial or product where we would look at years, hopefully, how many years post uh, stopping therapy, what do we get? And ideally, with the target of this this, uh, this therapy is that ideally it would never come back. Yeah, and that's, that's I mean, and that last point is really, really fascinating, right? Because as you mentioned, just the definition, how do you define cure, right? And and there's there's always an issue with this ability to remove the virus from you know latent cell reservoirs where it typically hides out, um, mm -hmm. and if you're able to get all of it or not. Um, so it's yeah. interesting to hear your perspective on sort of how you think about that that definition of cure. Um, Daniel, just, and actually, can I just mention one thing? Cause usually when people hear that, they say, wow, how long do you have to follow patients for? Well, uh, there's been some really outstanding work done by the AIDS clinical trial groups, uh, over the years, uh, Jessica Conway published a paper a couple of years ago, looking at six different of these six different studies. And these are all studies that took individuals off of antiretrovirals. So HIV positive people stopped their antiretrovirals and they watched for how long it takes for HIV to come back. And what they found was 50% of patients rebound within about three and a half weeks and in approximately eight weeks, just about everyone's rebounded. So what we did in this trial is we set an interim endpoint at 12 weeks after stopping art. Yep. Okay. Makes, makes sense. Um, so let, let's, um, I want to talk a little bit about the funding for the trial because I know you yeah. received a grant from, from CIRM. Um, yes, an amazing, outstanding group. And, and obviously given my, you know, my prior experience with them, I couldn't agree with you more. Can you <laughs> talk a little bit about just in general, the importance of accessing non-dilutive funding like CIRM grants to advance you know, your, your program or these types of novel programs in general? Uh, I'd say existential, <laughs> fundamental, whatever hyperbolic word we want to use. Uh, without it, we wouldn't have these. Uh, most of the re discovery uh, research going into funding going into Kamel's lab came from the NIH. So that was uh, the original non-dilutive funding for this type of technology. Uh, we're incredibly thankful and honored to be uh, awarded a CIRM grant. Uh, what an outstanding group of individuals for so many different reasons, scientifically, uh, economically, just doing good in the world, uh, trying to advance therapies for patients in need. Can't say enough about the teams uh, and, and historic teams at CERM over the years. Uh, no, th these are critical. Uh, we're, of course, looking for more. Uh, these trials are expensive and we uh, have ideas about how to improve these over time, whether it's the trials, bringing it to market, uh, bringing it to individuals in need, where there's a whole series of, of health equity uh, challenges and, and creative solutions we're gonna have to come up with in order to overcome those. So we're looking for the, the right collaborators. CIRM is a perfect example of those who can help uh, fund these therapies to get to patients. And, and Daniel, let, let's talk about that because it's, it's not just this trial or future trials for HIV that you're you're looking to conduct and fund, but 
you know, your, your platform is applicable to other viral diseases, a few of which you mentioned. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how translatable your approach is to other viral infections and, and conditions? Yeah, this is a really uh, great, uh, the right way to describe it. This is really, I think, an ex- one of the most exciting aspects of what we're doing at Excision. So we, we've been able to show that this concept, and we talked about that concept of making more than one cut in viral DNA as essential to deactivating virus. We've shown that it's true not only in HIV, but in viruses like JC virus, which causes PML, a rare fatal brain disorder. Uh, same with herpes virus and same with hepatitis B. We've got a whole set of other viruses that we'd love to work on, but we're a small company. We have to focus. Uh, but if there are groups that want to come and have us work on other things, like there's non-dilutive funding that wants to pick something else, very happy to start uh, discuss those kinds of discussions. But but what we we're we're focusing R and D is that we actually have quite a number of activities in each of these viral. We've got groups that are working on these viruses, but what they're learning is actually transferable across all of these. And what we mean is that I think the major difference between each of these viruses, the therapeutics targeting these virus, are the sequences we use. So I talked about that sort of uh, the, the, the pipeline of how we look at genetic sequences and then select the targets, right? The sequences we're using for targeting hepatitis B are just very different than HIV, of course, but that's a lot of the learnings from how we do the constructs to how we package to how we manufacture to the assays we use to measure all of almost many of these things are shared between these so uh, we call about we talk about leverage we talk about uh, experience and shared learnings uh, it, it's we're trying to leverage all of these in order to be as efficient as possible yeah and you know Daniel sort of going going back to this idea of sort of non dilutive funding um you know it, it takes a village right so that that's one option obviously you've also been successful in raising capital from from VCs right including mm-hmm. artists ventures and great point and and Bioverge is a, is a small investor in in excision can yeah. can you can you talk about um at, at what point you felt like you were really getting interest from the venture community to advance your therapy? Was, was there some sort of inflection point or, or, or when, when did that interest start occurring? Yeah. Thank you very much. First of all, for your support of the company and, and what we're doing here. Uh, th- I think it's been over time, which, which makes perfect sense. Artists, the team at artist ventures was really the first, the uh, uh, large venture group that did invest in. They, they led the series seed, we call it. Uh, in back in 2017 now, uh, quite a few years ago, uh, we then had several groups start to invest over time as the data emerged. Artists invested before we cured the first animal of HIV. This is they they saw the beauty in this uh, before the publication. What we I should have mentioned this right up front is Excision is still the only company to uh, essentially cure an animal of HIV, meaning um, uh, to remove viral genomes and then do a series of studies that showed that there was no active virus left in those animals. Uh, First time it's ever been done, we published it in Nature Communications. That was in 2019. 
Uh, we then uh, launched into primate studies as, as the technology moved forward. Then great point, led our Series A uh, in 2021. Uh, great groups, Norwest, Coda Capital, um, Adjuvant, uh, Abstract Ventures, Celesta, um, Gangels, just so many wonderful teams have, have joined uh, the cause. I'm thankful for to each of them. Yeah, and it's just it's such a such an amazing story what you've been able to accomplish. And so, Daniel, we we could probably talk for another two or three days about about these <laughs> topics, but but I do want to be cognizant of your time and and wrap up with one final question. And I'd like to ask what your vision for the future of excision is, and let's say the next three to five years. Uh, what a good one. In three to five years, we'd love to bring the first cures for patients, or at least the closest we can come to that word, meaning two patients and, and get them approved. Uh, this would be something where we can show uh, lack of viral rebound off of antiretrovirals or off of therapy for a sustained period of time, uh, in a period of time that... that uh, so, uh, going back up to your question... Um, Moving to uh, pivotal studies, getting approval, first approvals, uh, U.S., Europe, and other and around the globe. Ideally, working with and, and forging collaborations with multiple entities in order to make this work. You're, you said, use the words. It's going to take a village. It's going to take a global village. In this case, uh, we're going to need quite a few uh, collaborators in order to get two patients in in different territories, continents. Uh, communities. Uh, we're going to need to scale up manufacturing in some very large ways. These are markets that are quite a bit larger than the traditional gene therapy targets, orders of magnitude larger. And then uh, we'd love to bring, uh, look there, I talked about the communities that uh, community advisors that we've been building. We certainly need to expand that to communities around the world in a, in a very big way. So uh, we see some really great opportunities coming as we move the technology forward and the therapies. And, and those will just have such tremendous impact uh, for patients and, and for the industry in general as you reach and, and hit some of these upcoming milestones. So, Daniel, with that, I want to say a big thank you for, for joining us on the show today and, and a big thanks for your time. No, thank you. Really appreciate it. Good luck in everything you're doing. You're doing a great job. Please continue. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a really fascinating discussion with Daniel. I mean, what they are developing at Excision is just so exciting. And it's going to have, you know, assuming it's successful, such a huge impact on patients, uh, obviously starting with patients with HIV, but, you know, potentially patients with other viral infections. And it's just, it's such a different approach than I think what a lot of other companies have pursued in the past. And I'm, I'm just really excited about it. And of course, you know, a lot of this is predicated based on, you know, the work coming out of, uh, you know, Jennifer Doudna's lab and, and the CRISPR-based systems, which are still relatively new. So it's just really cool to see how that technology is being applied today. And it's actually in the clinic. So we're going to start seeing, you know, real world clinical results here pretty soon. We know HIV is potentially curable. You discussed the Berlin patient with Daniel. How compelling do you find Excision's approach? I find it extremely compelling, um, extremely compelling. I mean, 
there have been companies and academics that have been trying to replicate what happened with the Berlin patient for, for a long time now uh, with limited success. Um, and so those approaches have been very difficult to get into the clinic. Um, and so what Excision is doing is very different than what has been done in the past. And so, you know, they've made really rapid progress, I think, with their technology to already be in the clinic. They've already dosed their first patient. So I think there, there's huge potential here. And you heard us talk quite a bit about this idea of off-target effects and the specificity of, of what they're doing. Um, I think that's another huge advantage of what they're doing in terms of targeting viral DNA. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. There's also a platform underlying all of this. How big a point of distinction do you think that's going to be for the company? Well, you heard Daniel talk about this this sort of in silico you know platform that they use and how that has enhanced their ability to come up with specific probes to analyze on and off target effects. So to me, that is a critical component of what they're building. And so you have the in silico compared with the wet lab and in, in vivo stuff that they're doing, and they go hand in hand. And to me, that creates a really powerful combination. So I, I don't think they would be where they are today without the in silico design piece of it. And you heard Daniel talk a little bit about that. So yeah, I think, I think that, is, that is really powerful. And just as, as a general comment, right, I would sort of classify that as you know, moving into this you know, tech bio realm where you're marrying some of this very advanced bioinformatics you heard Daniel talk about in silico design with you know, wet lab experiments, in vivo experiments. And that, that sort of one-two combination, I think, is, is really powerful and is, is, to me, is you know, a hallmark of this sort of new age of, of company that exists today. And I think Excision is, is certainly one of those companies and is doing, doing stuff that could be you know, hugely powerful uh, for patients and, and across the industry. This is an approach that theoretically can be applied to any virus. It's being employed to address chronic viral diseases. But as we have growing threats of emerging viruses that are new in man, do you think this is pointing to an approach that might have traction there? That's a really good question, Danny. Um, I mean, the obvious place to start is, is certainly with the, the chronic you know, viral infections. But I, I could imagine a future state where this type of technology could be deployed to target acute infections. Right. I mean, things like some sort of future COVID pandemic, for example. Right. I mean, that, that's not here today. That's not, you know, tomorrow. But, you know, it seems like this technology could be adapted to that sort of thing in the future. So uh, I think Excision is, is going about it in the right way and targeting, you know, chronic viral infections. But I don't see any reason why this couldn't be adapted in the future to targeting other types of infections as well. Well, until next time. All right. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.
All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioBridge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.